This is episode number 78, How to Stay Motivated with Social Psychologist, Dr. Heather Patrick. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. How's your week going so far? I can't believe that November is flying by, and I hope that all the things that you're planning, all the things that you're doing, all the things that you're working on are going well. And at the base of all the things that we're doing is motivation. And motivation is one of my favorite topics and is something that I think about often because motivation can wear many faces. I've done a lot of my own personal research on motivation, but I was really excited to find an expert in motivation. Sometimes we're motivated by external factors like a race result, a promotion, money, a number on a scale, or a leaderboard at work. Other times we're motivated because we simply just love doing something. And usually it's somewhere in the middle. Going deep into why we choose to do certain things and how to stick with our habits is a fascinating topic. I personally think it's important to have awareness around self-talk and understanding how to motivate others in a positive, proactive way. It's not always easy to have self-talk and it's not always easy to stay motivated to do something either. So I was really excited to have the chance to speak with Dr. Heather Patrick. She earned her PhD in social psychology. She's contributed to health psychology in many ways, including her role as the health scientist and program director at the National Cancer Institute for five years and the associate director of the smokefree.gov initiative. She's also served as a faculty member at universities, and currently she works at Carrot to help create programs and technology around people stopping smoking. She's passionate about health coaching and is also a runner herself. Dr. Patrick has more than 50 peer-reviewed publications and nearly 15 years of experience using scientific theories of human motivation to help develop, implement, and evaluate behavioral interventions to tobacco cessation, nutrition, weight management, physical activity, and stress management. While I was preparing for this podcast, I actually dug up a bunch of her research and read some of her papers, which can be found at selfdeterminationtheory.org. You guys might find them interesting because a lot of them is around healthy eating and wellness protocols. This podcast is super interesting because we talked about what the self-determination theory is and what the building blocks of those are, the one thing to focus on when it comes to goal setting, how to harness intrinsic motivation over extrinsic motivation, how to motivate others as a parent or in the workplace to do their best, and why using external rewards isn't always the most effective, and how we can use self-determination theory in our daily lives to stick to habits, to create new routines, to get back on the wagon whenever we've set a goal and we've fallen off, how to actually get out of bed in the morning whenever you want to get out and go to yoga or go running or go get on your bike. I think to get the most out of this podcast is to really actively think about some of the questions that Dr. Patrick asks about some of the topics. So trying to address why we aren't actually doing the things that we think we should be doing and also identifying why we're doing them. Because having that sense of purpose and creating your sense of purpose around your goal instead of looking at an external thing that could happen in the future if you achieve your goal is a really great way to stay on track. And speaking of staying on track, one of the parts of self-determination theory is relatedness and having social support around you to help you create changes in your life. 
And if you're interested in adding in more vegetables, legumes, fruits and vegetables, or maybe you're interested in going fully plant-based, I have a free Facebook group called the Plant Powered Tribe with Sonia Looney on Facebook, and everybody is invited to join. You don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat plant-based. All you have to want to do is surround yourself with people who want to be healthy and who want to have healthy habits. There's plenty of people in there that don't want to go fully plant-based, and that's totally okay. It's just about sharing information and having that support around you, especially as we go into the holidays. With Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's, it's been really awesome to see different recipes people have been posting as alternatives to maybe some of the junk foods out there. I also have an Instagram called the Plant Power Tribe as well. The difference between the Instagram and the Facebook group is that the Facebook group is more of a community forum, whereas the Instagram is just stuff that I'm posting on a daily or by a daily basis. And I have stuff on there like different types of plant-based proteins or how to maximize iron absorption or different recipes. So you're welcome to go there. It's at Plant Power Tribe on Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for some holiday gift ideas, don't forget about my brand, Moxie and Grit, my sock brand. I have a lot of fun socks on there, including Do Epic Shit and Effing Magical Unicorn socks. I have some new winter socks available as well. So these make really great gifts. And if you want to go check it out, it's M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T, moxieandgrit.com. Awesome. Well, let's get into the show today with Dr. Heather Patrick and feel more energized around our personal motivation. Dr. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's so fun to get to talk to you because I've always been really interested in motivation and self-motivation in particular. And I first read Edward, is it DC? That's how you say the last mm -hmm. name? His book, Why We Do What We Do. And then I started digging even deeper. And then I came across you and your work. Yeah, I find that the, the theory has a lot of broad application, particularly around not only how we motivate ourselves, but how some of the circumstances around us can support or get in the way of how we're doing with driving toward those desired behavior changes. So yeah, it's fun to think about all the different places that that applies. Yeah, I read several of your papers on selfdeterminationtheory.org, and I noticed that a lot of your work is around healthy foods and making healthy choices and st sticking to healthy habits. And I know that myself and all the listeners, this is something that everybody struggles with. We like say we want to do something and then we start doing it, but then we fall off the wagon. So can you give some practical tips on how people can stick to a healthy eating plan? Yeah, I think it's obviously complex. And one of the things that's really hard about healthy eating is that you're making lots of choices and lots of decisions every day. And one of the things that I think often trips people up is that we get into this process of thinking in sort of these all or none ways, like I'm either doing it right or I'm not, and they've failed. And I think that's something that can be a little bit of a motivational sinkhole for people because it feels terrible to fail, first of all. But I think particularly with behaviors like healthy eating and being physically active, there's a continuum. So there's a range. It's not just, yes, I did this or I didn't like smoking is a little bit different in that regard. So I think part of it is how do we think about progress as part of the process and not just focusing on those outcomes. So I think that's one of the places where I've really found self-determination theory to be really helpful is to think about, you know, what are the ways that we are setting ourselves up for success with setting reasonable goals that give us a good feeling of confidence because we all need that but that also 
we aren't accidentally kind of hooking ourselves with rewards and punishments, whether those are tangible rewards and punishments or some of that negative self-talk that we sometimes get hooked on when things aren't going exactly as we would like. Yeah. And I guess some people probably don't know what self-determination theory is. So can you describe that? Yeah, absolutely. So people are probably fairly familiar with the idea of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. The idea that intrinsic motivation is, you know, the things that you do because you like them or because they're enjoyable or interesting or fun. And then extrinsic motivation being kind of the polar opposite of that. One of the things that self-determination theory has done that I think is really important in our understanding of how motivation works is that rather than thinking of intrinsic and extrinsic as these opposites, they really exist along a continuum. And so not all extrinsic motivation is the same. We can think of extrinsic motivation as anything that we might do for some reason other than we just love the behavior, right? Like very few people are gonna be like, I love eating broccoli. It's my favorite thing to do. Even if they like the taste of broccoli, like we just don't have that kind of experience with that. So the way the theory has really outlined this continuum is the idea that, you know, we've got rewards and punishments. That's like as extrinsic as you could possibly be. But then there are these other ways that we kind of inflict psychological rewards and punishments on ourselves, like how we celebrate successes and also how we deal with failures. And particularly, I think one of the things that's interesting about the and also about food in general is the relationship that we as a culture have with food. We think of good foods and bad foods. And when we eat the good foods, we feel really great about ourselves. And when we eat the bad foods, we keep on the guilt like, oh, I shouldn't have had that extra glass of wine, or I shouldn't have had that piece of cake or what have you. And that's that kind of shoulding is part of what really trips people up with sticking to any behavioral pattern or routine that they're trying to establish. Because the guilt might work okay in the short run, but ultimately it just makes you feel terrible about yourself. <laughs> and that is also a form of more external motivation is kind of that shoulding and those guilts and pressures that we put on ourselves to perform. And then and as you work your way through the continuum, you get into these more internal forms of motivation that aren't just about enjoying what you're doing, though that's certainly part of it. But you can also be internally driven by this is something that's consistent with how I think about myself. So one of the things that's really interesting to see, particularly in weight loss contexts, is how people's identities start to shift where they stop thinking of themselves as unhealthy and they start to think of themselves more in terms of like, I'm this person who is taking charge of her life and I want to be responsible for my decisions and I want to be a healthy person. I want to be able to stay active with my kids or my grandkids or what have you. And that kind of connection to values and identity is something that does become much more sustainable over time because those things are always going to be there where the feelings of guilt or the, the rewards and punishments aren't necessarily going to be. So that's kind of just a broad overview of sort of the way that motivation exists on a continuum. But I also think it's important to keep in mind that that doesn't just occur in a vacuum. It's not just that, oh, you're motivated or you're not, or you have intrinsic motivation or you don't. That also comes from how your own psychological needs are being met, both within yourself, kind of intrapsychically, as well as from your broader social environment. You know, we all want to feel capable. It's real hard to tackle change when you feel like there is no way that I can do this. Like nobody wants to approach it from that standpoint. 
And a lot of different psychological theories focus on this idea of competence or self-efficacy. The self-determination theory also acknowledges two other needs for facilitating more internal forms of motivation that are really important. And the second of those needs is autonomy, which is a word that sometimes trips people up. This doesn't mean kind of that rugged individualist, fiercely independent thing. It means we want to be an active change agent. We want to be an active part of the process. So this is where sometimes when somebody's given a plan or given a set of goals, it's real hard to stick with goals that somebody else is inflicting on you. And that's part of why in a quality clinical relationship, whether that's a coaching relationship or with a dietitian or with a primary care provider, it's really important that that's a collaborative process between client and provider such that the client is part of crafting the goals too and figuring out kind of what might be the next steps for them. So being an active part of the change process is really important. And it's also important to have needs for relatedness met. And what this means is feeling like the people around you who are important to you get where you're coming from and understand and appreciate that you're, you know, you're doing your level best. And they also understand some of the challenges that, that your social environment is providing kind of unconditional positive regard that they're going to like you and be with you, whether you're having a good day or a good moment with your goals. And they're also going to be with you and love you and support you, even if you're not. Yeah, there's so many little things to unpack in, in all those things that you just said. I know. So awesome. <laughs> Let's start with the unconditional regard, because a lot of people might think, well, yeah, of course, I love my kids unconditionally, or of course, I love my friends unconditionally, but they might not realize that their actions aren't showing it. So can you give an example of what actually conditional versus unconditional looks like? And we can pick like maybe kids coming home with their grades or something. Yeah, so that's a great example, because grades are obviously something that's sort of like piece of feedback for a kid about how they're doing in school. And conditional regard would look like, a parent who is elated over good grades and really, really angry or upset with a child over poor grades. And I think there are two important things to keep in mind in that example. So one is about the reaction that, you know, you are good, you are valued if you do the things that I want you to do. But the other part is that it's very outcomes focused. So it's not at all focused on how much somebody tried. It's about the result. It's about the grade. And I think particularly in education context, that's really important because students sometimes learn things at different paces and maybe they're really struggling with a subject, but they're working really hard. And unconditional regard in that context would be to say, how are you, you know, is first to kind of check in with the kid and see how the kid is feeling about the grade and the feedback. But it's also about like, let's talk about the process. Like, I know you've been working really hard or you've been meeting with your teacher after school or you've been, you know, you and I have been working closely together on this. And I really appreciate that you're trying so hard and the results will come over time. What can we do that would, you know, create some better supports for you so that, again, the child is being reassured that I like you and support you. And also I see your effort and your effort matters even if we're not yet there on the outcomes or the results. And I read somewhere that like as a kid, if your parents are looking at you and giving you this conditional regard, like they, if you're, if you're good at something, then they seem happy. And if you're not good at something, then they don't seem happy. That can turn into conditional self-inflicted regard where mm -hmm. 
now that the person and I mean, I'm this person, my parents were very grades focused, and they did their best to motivate me, you know, in the best way they could. And I, I did well with my grades. But that internal critic, that internal harshness, that perfectionism, kind of turn the mirror back on me. And that's something I've had to deal with my entire life. So like, if people are listening, and they're like, yeah, I'm really hard on myself for results. And if I don't get a result, or if I, I don't meet a certain number on the scale, or whatever, like, how do you work on getting out of that pattern? Yeah, that's so important. And I'm glad that you raised that issue. Because I think so much of what people struggle with when they're trying to make behavior changes, how to deal with failures and setbacks. And often what trips people up isn't the actual failure or the setback, it's the story they're telling themselves in their head. It's that inner critic that's telling them, you're not good enough, you can't do this, you're not trying hard enough. So part of the work is really around helping people to, first of all, recognize failures, because failures and setbacks happen, right? Like it's just a normal part of the process. So part of it really is around like making it normal, like it's not a perfectly linear path. There are going to be moments and days and even weeks that are going really well. And then there will be moments and days and weeks that are not going so well. That's normal. So part of it is about normalizing those fluctuations. It's also about helping people start to see that the process matters. So, okay, you aren't down the five pounds this month that you were hoping to be down. What are some changes that you've made, though, that have been in support of that goal? oh, well, I've stopped drinking quite as many soft drinks. Like I'm not drinking as many sugary beverages. Well, that's awesome. Like, again, you might not be seeing the number on the scale change yet, but that's doing a lot for your health. And that is in the service of those goals. So put that in the win column. And that's related to this third point, which is helping people to see not just failure as part of the process and to recognize the process, but also to reframe those failures as successes, because there, even if you haven't achieved the ultimate outcome, there are a gazillion little things along the way that have to happen to get there. And being able to recognize like, oh, you've made really positive changes to one or two or three of those things already. Keep up that good work. That's awesome. Let's build from there. I actually did a, a TED talk about that because I did this race in Nepal and all these things went wrong on the ninth day. And I had to say like, okay, I have to focus on all the things I did right and all the things that went well instead of things outside of my control that happened that mm -hmm. are making me feel like a failure. But I mean, even if you're reframing in your mind, like these, all the wins that you've had along the way or saying, you know, stress is an opportunity and setbacks are good because you get to grow. There's still the self-worth and the self-love piece where you're able to have in your brain that, yeah, okay, like I I'm going to learn from this, but to think I am still lovable, I am still worthy, I am still enough. I think that there's a, a bit of a distinction between the two. And how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, I think that's the hard part, right? <laughs> and one of the things that I've learned in my own experience, both in my own life and also in, in working with people, is that there's often a spillover effect. And so sometimes part of what's happening is I'm learning right now to be a little gentler with myself on this goal. And as I practice that, and it is practice because we're trying to unlearn and undo this habitual pattern of negative self-talk. But as I learn to do that in this space, it makes it possible for me to do it in another space and then to start to feel a little bit more comfortable in your life and in the place that you are in your life. And again, this is also not linear, right? It's not that, and one day you arrive and 
here you are and you are fully accepting of yourself and that inner critic is completely silent. It's really about trying to get that inner critic to be a little quieter and for you to be able to develop some skills to help do some of that quieting, to remind yourself that I am enough and that my worth is not fully tied to the number on the scale or the number of vegetables that I ate or the grade that I brought home. But it's it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people that listen to this podcast are athletes. Some of them are Olympians. Some of them are like weekend warriors. But looking at our results as athletes, whether it be mm-hmm. like a power number or a race result or how we are compared to somebody else, that's that's an extrinsic thing. But people are often motivated by saying, I'm going to set this goal, this extrinsic goal of I want to, you know, do this hundred miler in this time, or I want to run a marathon in this time, or I want to come this place. And people use that as motivation. But if that's not the best way to do it, then what's the best way to do it? Yeah, and I think with particularly with athletes, and certainly with professional athletes, there are a host of things that are going on there, right? Like, putting a roof over your head is dependent on your performance. Like that's a different kind of pressure than the weekend warrior who has a set of goals. And I can share a little bit of a a personal story. So I'm, I'm a runner, a recreational runner. Nobody is going to be concerned about me crossing a finish line first. Um, But with the magic of the internet, even us recreational athletes can see like how we're stacking up. And my stepson's former swim coach is also a runner And she and I were neck and neck for years. We ended up at lots of the same local events. And then for like three or four years, I was faster than her. I was winning and it was amazing. (laughs) And she has trained her butt off for the last two years and she would smoke me any day. And that does not feel very good. (laughs) And And it's funny because even though I have studied motivation and I've worked with people around how to motivate yourself, This has been a real tripping point for me over the last year or so, because while it's fantastic to have goals and to have stretch goals, right? Like that's part of what's interesting about sports is that you're constantly challenging yourself to go a little harder, to go farther, to go faster, whatever it is. And that's awesome because it's interesting to try new things and to be challenged. But there's also the tipping point where you stretched just a little too far and it becomes demoralizing. And for those of us who are recreational athletes, that means getting out the door in the morning is real hard for getting those workouts in. So I think part of it is, again, the work, the process of unhooking from all of those comparisons. And it's also harder as we age because, you know, you get to this point, you're like, oh, I'm going to be setting the PRs going the other direction going forward. And that's not good at all. But figuring out like, what is it that you loved about that sport? Or what is it that you enjoyed about it? And I think that's been part of my process over the last several months in particular, is first focusing on, I miss the feeling of being able to go out and run for two hours, just because like, being in shape in that way feels good. Like, it's enjoyable, it's time for me to reflect and be on my own. And the other piece of it is I also really miss being able to run with other people and being at a level of fitness where anybody who's a recreational mortal runner, (laughs) not, not setting world records can say, Hey, do you want to go for a run on Saturday? And I'm like, sure, I'm game. And so those are things that for me tap more into what I value about running than 
competing against my stepson's former swim coach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it seems like sitting down and even making this journaling exercise where you can write down the things that you really love about whatever goal you're going after. And not saying, I want to be this weight because then I'll be hot. Or I want to be this speed because then I'll be fast. Instead of saying those things. And I mean, that's really like a happiness horizon thing because you'll say, I'll be happy when I'm this. But then once you achieve that goal, you actually feel empty and there's going to be something else that you wish you would feel happy. So yeah, that's actually something that I work on as well is like trying to say, okay, what is it about today that I'm enjoying? Not about like, I'm going to be happy if and only if I can achieve this goal. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to ask you about the autonomy piece because I kept reading the words autonomous motivation and that might not be familiar to people because like you mentioned, they we kind of know what the definition of the word autonomy is, but how does that apply to motivation? And this is something that we've talked about a lot within the self-determination theory community about this word being something that, that can be really hard for people to understand because there's this common other definition of autonomy as independence. So as it applies to motivation, what autonomous motivation means is that you are acting from a sense of personal choice and personal volition, that those pressures and those shoulds, whether they're coming from outside or from in your own head, are quieter and they're less. So that what you're doing is something that you endorse yourself. It's something that's personally meaningful to you. It's something that you're intentionally choosing and that you're working toward from that space of it being a larger part of who you are as a person rather than something that you're being pushed or nudged to do. Okay. And like, how would you say social media plays a role in this autonomous motivation? Oh, an easy question. Great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, You know, I think that social media is something that can be really fantastic because that is a way for people to connect to other people who maybe are attempting to pursue similar goals. Like there's something really fantastic about having some camaraderie with others and also shared suffering. I mean, like, let's be honest, you're an endurance athlete. Part of part of what you connect with other athletes on is, you know, the experience of the shared suffering and, oh, that was a really rough day or a really rough course or what have you. So in those ways, I think social media can be really valuable and really support autonomous motivation is creating the sense of community and connectedness, certainly in the world of like charity writing and charity racing. You know, those are other ways that people tap into their values, like, you know, curing leukemia and lymphoma is something that's really important to me. And so I'm going to invest this time in training my body and also invest financial resources to supporting this charity. And that also creates kind of that broader social network. So I think those are ways that it can be really positive. On the other side, when social media is used as a space for keeping up and competition, like the negative competition, not the, you know, growth and expansion kind of competition. Yeah, the, le- the less than. I am yeah, less the than. less than. And, you know, seeing like everybody's best self, like, and that was actually a decision that I made several years ago. I, I post my runs on social media because I'm that annoying person. But I remember the first few times that I had really terrible workouts and I was like, now I have to post about this too, because that's authentic about my experience. Because if I'm only posting to the world about when I've had a fantastic workout and the run felt effortless, or I went faster than expected, that paints this picture that running is always easy and always enjoyable for me. And that's not true. 
And I think that's one of the things that can be a potential pitfall with social media is that if all everybody is putting out there is, you know, look at this salad that I ate and not, and here is the gigantic fill in the blank other thing that's not quite so healthy. It creates this idea that everybody else is succeeding and doing it right. And therefore there must be something wrong with me because that's not at all what my life looks like. So I think it can be kind of a double-edged sword. I think there are definitely great potentials, but there are also potential pitfalls there too. Yeah. And I mean, that definitely plays a role in the relatedness piece of the self-determination theory. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about the workplace a little bit because, or, or you could even put this in your family, but in the workplace, like a lot of places will put people's results, they'll post results or they'll have competitions for people. Like my husband, he's a financial advisor and they like post up people's results every single month. And they try and motivate people with these campaigns with prizes and things like that. And I don't know if that's the best environment for everybody. Like maybe some people thrive, but if someone listening to this is in charge of somebody else at work or in charge of a team, how can they motivate their team to be at their best and to provide this autonomous, supportive environment? Yeah, leaderboards and those kinds of things can be so tricky because there are a couple of things. It's important for people to know where they stand, like are they living up to expectations? And in some jobs, the nature of those expectations are very numbers or results oriented. And that being said, one of the things, and we've certainly seen that in the business world, like a lot of what drove many of the problems that we had with the financial crisis of what's that been almost 10 years ago, like a big part of what was driving that is these were people who were under a tremendous amount of pressure to get all of these loans signed or to get, you know, all of these types of achievements. And so one of the things that's particularly tricky about that, aside from the potential to create more competitive and less cooperative work environment is that, you know, when there's so much pressure coming around rewards and those types of performance, it can drive people to engage in not particularly moral or ethical behavior. And so I think that's something that is really important to keep in mind. And that being said, like there's certainly a subset of people who enjoy a bit of friendly competition That's something that they find fun and exciting, and it's a way for them to connect with their colleagues. And at the same time, again, going back to kind of our earlier conversation about grades and conditional regard, you have to walk that very fine line of making sure that as particularly as a manager, what you're doing when you interact with your employees is, first of all, conveying your expectations, but also making sure that you're not basically saying, you know, you got one shot and you're out, you know, like you must do this because that just makes people really anxious and again, can potentially lead to some unethical behavior. Yeah. And along the same lines with grades and saying to kids, like, I remember (laughs) in middle school, they had pogs. I don't know if you remember pogs and slammers and things like that, but it was these, this stupid game, but basically like if you got A's on your report card, you could go and you would get for free these pogs from the store or like people will pay their kids for good grades, or if they get A's, Mm -hmm. they'll take them out for ice cream. So how can we create an environment for our kids where we can still motivate them to be performing at and doing their best instead of rewarding being the best? Yeah. And again, I think this is a place where there's a place for rewards to acknowledge participation or to acknowledge effort. And that can be helpful because in those contexts, rewards can be informative. It can let you know how close you are to achieving a certain outcome. 
And that can be beneficial. It can be motivating because it's information and it's feedback. I think when rewards get really heavily tied to outcomes, whether those outcomes are grades or in the context of a health plan, like you only get this rate if you meet all of these things, or we're going to penalize you if you smoke or if you're obese or if whatever. Those are things that can be very demoralizing for people and it makes the means the end. And that does not set up people for long-term success. And particularly when it comes to health behaviors, most of what kills us and most of what we're trying to get people to change are behaviors that we want them to enact long-term. And if the only reason somebody is changing their diet is to change the number on the scale, that's a no-win situation from a motivational perspective because one of two outcomes is possible. One outcome is they lose the weight, in which case the nutrition changes have served their purpose and therefore are no longer needed, right? Like that's what has happened motivationally. Mm -hmm. Or they don't achieve the weight loss, in which case why bother? Why am I suffering with eating these foods that I don't really feel that excited about? It's not doing what I want it to do anyway. And in both cases, what you've done is you've set people up to engage what you intend to be a long-term behavior, to engage in it only for a short while. Yeah. So, I mean, really, it's about changing your lifestyle, changing the way that you look at all of these things. But it takes, like, you can't just change it overnight. And right. There's people that embark on self-destructive behavior if they make a mistake too. Like we'll go back to food because that's the easiest example. It's like they've eaten perfectly all day. They've like written down everything, but then they have a cookie and then it's like, oh no, I had a cookie. Well, now I might as well eat the whole box. So like Mm -hmm. in that moment of intensity, how can people hone in their intrinsic motivation to not fall off the wagon like that? Yeah, I think there's not obviously a one-size-fits-all solution for this. One of the things that I'm doing myself right now, because I'm trying to get back into a regular routine with with fitness that I've fallen off the wagon on, is I've actually got a, a mantra for the month for myself, which is to ask myself, does this support the life I'm trying to create? And what that does for me is it connects me to my broader goals and values, the things that are most important to me. And it's this easy-ish, it's not an easy question to answer, but it's an easy-ish question to ask myself when I'm thinking about, oh, I can have one more glass of wine. It'll be totally fine. Well, no, because you're going to feel like trash doing your interval workout tomorrow morning. So it's actually not going to be fine. And so it's just enough to sort of disrupt what would become that self-destructive behavioral pattern that you just described. And so I think that's part of the work is helping people to figure out like, what is the thing that you can do to disrupt the, oh, I made this one mistake, therefore it's all for naught. I might as well go all the way over, you know, off into the deep end with this. I like that. I like that mantra too. It's working so far. I'm halfway through the month. (laughs) Yes. Two weeks ago. So what about these people that say, well, it takes 21 days to make a habit, or lately I've been hearing it takes 66 days to make a habit. How does self-determination theory play into the role of how long it takes to solidify a habit? Yeah, so I think one of the things that distinguishes self-determination theory from perspectives on habit is that it doesn't really, habits are not volitional behavior. Habits are things that you're doing kind of automatically or without thought. And one of the things that I've often found myself frustrated by is the use of the word habit to apply to behaviors like healthy eating. A habit for me is putting my seatbelt on. 
I get in the car. Oh, I have no idea how the seatbelt got on. Healthy eating and exercising and quitting smoking and, you know, getting good sleep. None of those work that way. I have never once found myself sitting at a table and going, huh, how'd that salad get here? I have no idea. (laughs) It always requires a choice. And I think that's one of the things that's really an important, and some of this is semantic, is differentiating like routine from habit. But I think particularly with with food, because we've been talking about that a little bit, it's not just once a day that you're making those choices. It's multiple times every day. And you have to keep making those choices multiple times every day. And not that it needs to be 100%, obviously. But I think part of it is that you need to give yourself just behaviorally, you need to give yourself a bit of a runway to get used to things being different. Whether that is, you know, you're starting a new exercise routine, yeah, you're going to feel a little uncomfortable. And that's part of the process. You know, changing your diet, yeah, you might find that there are some foods you don't like. Totally fine. That doesn't mean you wipe out an entire class of foods because you didn't like a couple of them. You know, it's like this is about figuring out kind of what works for you. And so one of the things that I found really helpful in working with clients is, first of all, to think in short-term goals first. So for me right now, I'm doing a theme for the month. And having whether it's a month or a week or a day, and every client is going to be a little bit different, I think thinking in those short-term chunks, knowing like, ultimately, I want to get to this place. So self-determination theory doesn't have, you know, a set number of days for establishing a habit or a routine, but it really is about, you know, having those building blocks in place so that it becomes psychologically perpetuating to make the choices you want to make and to engage in the behaviors you want to engage in. Yeah, something that's been helpful for me is I struggle with doing core work and those types of things. So I've had to lower the lower it so low to make it almost impossible to say no. So I'll say, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it for one minute. And the only thing that stops me from saying I'll do it for one minute is, oh, well, that's stupid. One minute's not going to do anything. But even if you say I only have one minute, like a lot of times you end up doing more than the one minute. It's just the getting started part is so hard. So like, why is it so hard to get started? Because once you're out the door in the morning on your run, once you're doing the core work, once you're eating your meal, like... Now the ball is rolling and you actually are enjoying it, but getting started, it's just so hard. It is. And this is where, in addition to self-determination theory, I think there are other perspectives to pull from. And part of it really is about orchestrating your environment in a way that makes it kind of a no-brainer to do those things. And the reality is you're always going to have to engage your brain in some way with this. Like you're ultimately always going to have to say, okay, you know, the alarm clock went off at five to make that 6am yoga class, I got to get up now. And so some of it is a little bit of that pushing yourself out the door. And I think this is one of the things that I find so interesting about self-determination theory is that we talk about these different places of motivation along the continuum. But the reality is, we've got multiple forms of motivation for any given behavior operating most of the time. So it's not like, I'm just intrinsically motivated to do that. It's like, sure, you're intrinsically motivated and you'd probably feel a little bit guilty if you didn't do it. And this is part of who you are and, you know, like all of those things. So I think getting out the door, getting started, part of it really is about, like you were just saying, like starting with a smaller goal that's something you know you could really achieve. And maybe it's not one minute because maybe one minute feels silly or ridiculous, but maybe it's, you know, with nutrition, it's like one change. Like, what is that? Maybe the one change you want to focus on is cutting back on sugary drinks. Maybe it's increasing vegetable intake, like whatever it is, choose one thing and start there because otherwise it's just this huge monolith that feels completely impossible to get to. 
Yeah, and this also relates to willpower. And um, mm-hmm. Dr. Kelly McGonagall wrote this book called The Willpower Instinct. And like, how is this related to willpower? Is self-determination and willpower the same thing? They're not entirely the same thing. And I think there's a lot of chatter these days about the concept of willpower, because that's also a place where people can be kind of their own harshest critics. It's like, oh, I didn't do it. I guess I just don't have enough willpower. And there is a part of it that requires, you know, kind of that bit of oomph. But I think one of the things that self-determination theory has emphasized is less about willpower and more about choice and intention. And they're related concepts. They're obviously not, you know, completely separate from each other. But there's something to be said for thinking about it less as making myself do something versus choosing to do something because it supports the life I want to create or it fits in with something else that's important to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction between the two. So what about uh, procrastination? Because I'm also a writer. I like writing, but I really struggle with procrastination. And if I have a feature article due, I tend to wait till the last possible minute to get started. And it's really annoying. And it's like, I like it. I have fun when I'm doing it, but I just procrastinate. Like, how do people stop procrastinating? Oh, I wish I had the answer to that. (laughs) You can make a lot of money if you had the answer to that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That'd be the silver bullet, right? So I think part of it is to do a little bit of motivational unpacking there. Like, what is the procrastination about? You know, one of the things about a deadline is that sometimes the deadline forces you to do something that you aren't entirely into. Like, sure, you like writing, but maybe the topic isn't something that you're quite as excited about. Or maybe it's a topic that you feel not quite as capable tackling as some other topic. And so I think anytime you find yourself in the space of procrastination, I think it's worth exploring, why is it that I don't really want to do this? You know, and sometimes we intentionally procrastinate, right? Like maybe it's I want to save this for a time that I can really be present with it, that I can really devote attention to it. Well, that's going to require that you make that time happen because otherwise you're just telling yourself a story that sounds real nice, but probably isn't really true. So yeah, I think part of it really is about unpacking what the procrastination is about because we don't procrastinate on the stuff that we're super passionate about or where the topic is something that we're, we're super passionate about. Hmm. And how does laziness or the word lazy play a role into this? Because a lot of times people think the opposite of the word determined or hardworking is lazy. Can someone be self-determined and lazy at the same time? (laughs) Or maybe they're self-determined to be lazy. I don't know. (laughs) They can be self-determined to be be what might look like laziness. But I think part of that is that the word lazy obviously carries with it quite a bit of judgment and stigma. And it is partly perceptual, right? It's that we see somebody who's not doing all the things and we think, what's wrong with them? They must be lazy. And maybe it's just that they're super focused. You know, there's been a ton of recent work that's come out in like kind of the workplace wellness world around like, you know, should we really be working 10 to 12 hour days? And turns out, no, in fact, we can get an awful lot done in about five to six hours if we make that truly productive time. But we have this idea culturally that like, oh, the person who's the first one in the office in the morning, the last one to leave, like that's the hardest worker. No, that's the person who's spending the most time at work. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting the most done. And so I think one of the things that's tricky about laziness is that sometimes something that might appear to be lazy isn't necessarily so. It may be that someone has chosen to approach how they're doing a task in a slightly different way and obviously isn't 
if you're a manager, there are different conversations to have around that. But yeah, I think, and some in that respect, somebody could be volitionally, quote, lazy, but it's not really that they're lazy. It's that they've chosen to have a less intense approach to something. Yeah, I've read some interesting research about periodized rest in your workday. So in factories or, or in places where people work for a certain period of time, like 60 to 90 minutes, and then they take like a 15 to 20 minute break every 60 to 90 minutes. And those people are a lot more productive in the same period of time as somebody that works straight through without a break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But people would say like, they're taking breaks all the time. They're so lazy. I'm working harder because I'm here all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting to think about it. And also as a society, we reward the hustle. Mm -hmm. We say, oh, like that person is like doing everything. They work so hard. And that's the extrinsic motivation right there because you're striving for that feedback. You're striving to be liked for that reason. So I think it's really important to change how we think about that word. Like I used to love the word hustle. Like that's so cool. But this year I realized like I hustle too much and mm -hmm. being a hustler is not always a good thing because it might mean that you don't have very good balance in your life or like, you're not resting or you're not taking care of yourself. Or it's just frantic, right? It's the hair on fire hustle. It's like, I'm sorry, but it cannot be on fire all the time. Like it's just not... And when you're functioning in that way, it's hard to be more internally motivated then because, you know, you're being chased by the bear. Like that's what the hustle is often about. Yeah. So I want to talk about your work at Carrot. So can you tell us what the company does and kind of what your role is there? Yeah. So Carrot is a smallish health tech startup. We've been around for about three years. And about a year ago, we launched our first and primary product, which is called Pivot. And Pivot is a smoking cessation program. It's digitally delivered. So it has kind of three main components. One is the first FDA-cleared carbon monoxide breath sensor intended to be used outside of clinical settings by a person. And carbon monoxide is one of the metabolites that people exhale when they smoke. So you, one way that you can track your exposure to toxins and cigarettes is to see how your carbon monoxide levels fluctuate throughout the day and how they fluctuate in response to when you smoke. We also have a mobile application that delivers the U.S. clinical practice guidelines for smoking cessation. And we also have uh, health coaching, which is delivered one-on-one -on -one with a real person via um, in-app chat. So we, we bring all those pieces together. And I am the vice president of behavioral science at Carrot. So my job is to make sure that what we're doing with the app and the sensor is well-grounded in best practices for working with people around tobacco use and potentially smoking cessation. One of the things that's unique about Pivot is that we are not designed just for people who are like, yeah, I'm totally ready to quit. We're really designed for the people who are like, I know I should quit, but I'm not sure if I can right now. So really capturing some of those folks who are a bit more ambivalent and kind of helping to, you know, move them along the pathway to the time where they're ready to make a decision for themselves that it's it's time to quit. So, of course, I'm drawing a lot from self-determination theory there and working with people on kind of wrestling with that ambivalence. And I also lead our health coaching team. And so I get to work with and be part of the training process with our coaches and also to make sure that there's really good alignment between what we're delivering through the technology piece and what we're delivering through the human piece. It sounds like there's a lot of really cool things going on there. Yeah, it's been a ton of fun. And I, I've been there for a little over a year and a half now. So I came in 
before our product was developed. So I got to be a huge part of the development of our the first version of our product. And we're now working on our second generation of the sensor and also the app experience. And growing our coaching team has been a ton of fun too. It's like with smoking, there's people that say, I know I should quit, but they actually don't want to. So you know, there's the people that want to quit and can't. And there's the people that know it's bad for you, but just don't care and just keep going. So like using pivot, like, are you just trying to show them like on a daily basis, how bad it is for them to help self-motivate? Yeah. So I've never spoken with a smoker who doesn't know that it's bad for them. Everybody, (laughs) everybody knows that that's not a newsflash. I think one of the things, and there are obvious analogies to other health behaviors here too. When people say, I know I should quit, but I really don't want to. That's a really great opportunity for exploration. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do with Pivot is to, first of all, create an opportunity for self-exploration for people, but also through the coaching experience to help facilitate some exploration with the person. Because one of the things that's especially difficult with smoking and with smoking cessation is that most people try and fail dozens of times before they, quote, get it right. And so a lot of times when somebody says, I know I should quit, I just don't want to, I don't care. That to me is often a signal that this is a person who has tried before and just doesn't feel capable of doing it. And so in a clinical context or in a coaching context, there's great opportunity to talk with them about their previous experience. And you know what, some people might choose to continue smoking. And I think, you know, philosophically, you know, I respect that choice. And this is an addiction. And so it's really tricky to figure out what part of this is truly a choice. And what part of this is a little bit more of kind of the I give up, I've tried a gazillion times before, I can't do this, it's not worth the effort or the, you know, the frustration that it brings me to try to quit. Yeah, the capable part, I find that really interesting because outside of smoking, people say that about all kinds of different things. Like, I'm, sure. just, not, I'm just not capable. What do you tell them? I mean, I know that there's a bunch of different things that you probably tell them because everybody's different. But like, if people want to apply this to their life today, like, how can someone say, well, actually, I am empowered and I am capable of doing this? Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways to approach that. So one is to think about something that you actually are really good at and think through, like, how did you get to be really good at that? Because once you've mastered something, once you're really good at it, it's hard to remember how hard you had to work to get to that point and that there were setbacks in that process too. And then the other way to approach it is to really unpack, okay, this thing you've tried to do and that you failed at before, what was a moment when you felt like you were successful? Like it wasn't, you know, one and done in most cases. So when was a time that you felt successful? What did that look like? What was the progress that you made? And then also to start to unpack those failures a little bit and figure out what went wrong. One of the things that we really try to emphasize in Pivot, and again, this has broad application outside of smoking, is when somebody is ready to start thinking about quitting smoking, we help them build a quit plan. And one of the things reinforced both through the voice of our app and through coaching is this is your plan. Your plan might change. You might try one part of this plan and it doesn't work for you. And if it doesn't, that's totally fine. That means that there's something wrong with your plan. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. And helping people to see that part of this is about tweaking a plan until the plan is the right plan for you, whether that is eating healthier or losing weight or being physically active or writing more consistently or whatever it is, 
that you see that kind of flexibility and it's about the plan. And so putting, shifting some of that blame and criticism onto the plan also makes it much more tactical because you know what part of your plan is working and you can say like, oh yeah, this work, this writing for 30 minutes in the morning is not my jam. That's not when my brain is working. That's not working. So the solution isn't stop writing. The solution is what time of day is better for your brain to be writing and use that time instead. Yeah, I just started thinking about people that have trouble making plans because mm-hmm. not everybody's like, I, I love plans and I love like structure, but I have some family members that hate, really hate having a plan. It's like really hard for them to have that. So I know it's a little bit off topic, but how can people work on having a better plan for those that hate having a plan? So my answer to that would depend on why they hate having a plan. If they hate having a plan because they find plans to be controlling, I suspect that's because they've never actually crafted a plan themselves. They've been given a plan by somebody else that they don't feel that autonomous engagement with. So for those people, I'm like, awesome. You know what? You can be totally in charge of this plan. And, you know, here are some suggestions. So part of this is about providing opportunity for choice, but also providing some structure. So for example, with a quit smoking plan, like one of the things you'll want to do is to identify your smoking routines and figure out which ones of those you'll need to disrupt because they might be triggers for you to to smoke. So you can focus just on that piece. So that's how I would handle the person who hates plans because they find them controlling. Other people hate plans because it's overwhelming to them to plan. And I think part of where that comes from is the feeling that I must plan the entire thing right now. And that is not actually true. You can plan one piece of it and just focus on that one piece of it that feels like a digestible bite and then build from there. Okay. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. So if people want to learn more about self-determination theory and they want to dig deeper into this conversation, where's a good place for them to do that? Yeah. So the self-determination theory website is the obvious send selfdeterminationtheory.org. And the other place that I would encourage folks to go to is a company called Habitry did a podcast called the better cast, which I think rebranded into betterish um, about a year ago. And they talk a lot about human behavior and how people changed behavior and got good at something. And there are lots of little self-determination theory nuggets woven throughout that. Oh, that sounds like a really cool show. I should check that out. It is. It's fun. Cool. And if people want to get a hold of you, where can they do that? They can get me on Twitter. I am hpatrick underscore PhD on Twitter, or you can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think that there's a lot of information in here and a lot of things for people to put into practice in their day-to-day lives starting right now. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. There's a lot of really great information that we just got to hear with Dr. Heather Patrick. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I think that there is a lot to be learned. And I just wanted to summarize a couple of things. So number one, with goal setting, it's really important to focus on the process more than the outcome. And it's okay to set a concrete goal with an outcome, but on your way to the goal, celebrating many successes by looking at what you're actually doing to get better. Number two is understanding why you're setting the goal. So again, going back and focusing on the why instead of what you're going to be or how you're going to feel after you've achieved the goal 
sense of purpose also directly affects motivation. And I've seen this in the literature over and over and over. So really sitting down and trying to identify why you want to do something will help you stay motivated. The last is the autonomous motivation piece, especially in relation to supporting one another. And that comes down to giving people choices. So whenever you give people choices when they're trying to achieve something or having them be in control to some extent of what that goal setting process or planning process is will help them stay motivated and on track. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, you guys. Thanks for subscribing and sharing the show with your friends. It really means the world to me that you're back here every single week listening to these episodes, that you're taking screenshots and sharing them on social media. And I'm really looking forward to sharing with you some future guests as well. So wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.